This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Logan. And if you are still listening to this episode of the Crowncast, you are a real one. I mean that. You are the real ones. Uh, with the way that Charlotte FC has been playing, with the, the trouble that has gone on around Charlotte FC, etc., etc., with the, the disappointing, sinking feeling that yet another playoffs are likely to not see uh, the crown. If you still have the, the energy, the mental wherewithal to, to push through the muck and join us here at the crown cast, I'm going to say this at the beginning instead of at the end. We love you. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, here to push through the muck because of their incredible mental wherewithal is Josh. Hello, Josh. Hey, Logan. Hey, Ewan. And Ewan. Hello, Ewan. Hello. Uh, gentlemen, if you had advice for the listeners about where your, your mental fortitude, the strength of will that you have found to, to engage in the football, even when it, it sometimes comes down to these moments, uh, you know, Ewan, what, what would you tell the listeners? Um, I suppose I could say that my team from home uh, Leeds United got relegated a few months ago, and that's not going to happen to Charlotte. So I, <laughs> I don't know how much solace that will bring anyone else. But for me, uh, it's it's certainly one of my go tos. But yeah, just the possibility that things can get bad, but they can't get worse because technically next season you get to start again. But also we have a nineteen percent chance or whatever it was of still making the playoffs this season. So yeah, you could just use that number as well. You find those uh, links that we were on earlier and say, yeah, there you go. There's yeah, we, more than just found, a chance still. We found some questionable links that gave us some percentages to make playoffs that I'm not sure were legitimate, but uh, we'll take it. You know, yeah, we'll we'll take that. Uh, Josh, your your advice to the listenership on how to on how to stay strong as a as a football lover. Embrace the pain. Listen, sports lets you down. At least that's what I found in my life. I was a '90s kid who grew up rooting for Atlanta. And unfortunately, the Cowboys. And then I went to the University of Virginia. There's a lot of pain in my sports teams. But when Atlanta won a few years ago, the joy on that day was unlike anything else. So if you embrace the pain, the few fleeting moments of joy will be all that much sweeter. So uh, the, the general advice from the Crowncast appears to be if you just make everything else around you worse then Charlotte FC doesn't sound so bad, which I guess is technically true, but I can't necessarily say that the crown cast should put our name on it. We are, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to skip a skip ahead. Like, like I said, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. We are going to talk uh, Philadelphia and Cincinnati today, and neither one of them is going to be fun. So what we're going to do instead of talking about the stuff that we usually do with the goals and all that stuff, we've picked out a few sort of big talking points that move through these games. And we will do those instead, trying to forget that Philadelphia came back with a last-minute equalizer again for us to tie, what was it at that point in time, Ewan? Nine out of 11, something like that? Yeah, yeah, that was the stat, I believe, yep. For us to tie nine out of 11. And I will say, Charlotte did get the message for the Cincinnati game that the, the fans would not accept another draw. And so they lost the game 3-0. We did it, uh, boys. <laughs> say what? 
We did it. We did it. We did it. We did it. <laughs> we did it. We we changed the script. You're high-fiving uh, after the game, I'm sure, in the dressing room. <laughs> so, so part of this might be my fault because we did a switch up on the post-react where I just kind of threw order and, and stuff out the window. For those who listen to that post-react will know that I was like, I'm changing something. So hopefully Charlotte FC changed something. And maybe what I changed was wrong. Maybe maybe I had I had some effect in there, and if that's the case, you all have my sincerest apologies. Uh, I I I don't necessarily think it is, but I'll take some of that weight as long as everyone else takes some weight too. Let's talk Philly. Let's very briefly talk Philly, because I think that there's a player who deserves to be called out again for what was an amazing game, and that's Carol Schroderski. And we have a couple of people on this podcast who like to talk about how good Carol Schroderski is. One of them in particular is Ewan. Ewan, how good was Carol in this game? Yeah, he has he has a few of these games where you can kind of tell within quite early on that, you know, he's on it in the way that he's, you know, receiving the ball deep, the way he's carrying the ball, just how crisp he is with some of his passing. He is a little bit streaky. I wouldn't say he's a confidence player, but he is someone who can be a little bit streaky when it's going badly. It, become, it can become a little bit toys out the pram and everything like that. But when you get him in this kind of form, he is, I think, almost undeniably the, the most effective attacking player in the side. And he was he's pretty much vital in everything good that happened uh, for Charlotte going forward in this game. Um obviously including both of the goals uh, that we scored. I think this kind of game also suited him a little bit as well because he was afforded that little bit more space uh, in, in these kind of games. The way we set up, everything was a little bit wider. We played, we obviously got the new setup, things being a bit more central, um, condensing the middle areas of the pitch. But in this game, it was all a little bit more spread out, giving him a little bit more space to work in in the middle, and he made the most of it. Um, I... Games like this with Svidersky, uh, um, like I mentioned, we've had a few of them this season. They do equally kind of frustrate as much as they do entertain because you wonder why there can't be a system in place that you know means that we get this more regularly. Um, or you can focus it more directly on Svidersky and say, why is this player not as consistent as he should be? You can always do the player versus the tactics and say which one should be bringing out more of the other, but... Yeah, this this was a great game from Svideski, and I think this is the for a quite a disagreeable player. I think for the most part, this is the guy who we can all agree is is pretty fantastic. So, uh, I have to jump in there because I th- I think you put forward a good point that there is an element of this that is placed on the player, and there's an element of this that's placed on the system, as it always is. But there's long sort of been a standing belief that Carroll has never quite had or found his place in Charlotte that the system has never quite given him the the role to stand out. For you, Ewan, and I'll get to you next, Josh, so you can be the bad guy too. For you, Ewan, how much of this do you feel like is, this was just never a team meant for Carol Schroederski. It never played to his strengths. It was never going to be a place he shined. Versus how much do you think that this is wasted opportunity by Carol? I, le- I lead more. <laughs> keep in mind, we're talking about this after he had an amazing game. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing game. Obviously, the kind of big picture of it is, for me, is more um, the idea that we've just never really been fully suited to him as a player. And I will caveat that with saying that he is not the easiest player to build a team around. You do get these playmaker 
second striker? Are they, well, are they a playmaker? Are they a second striker? Are they a number nine? Kind of hybrid players, which they are hard to build around. They are hard to compensate for sometimes. Um, but you almost have a, a situation here where we've never really built a team that was suited to him. And because of the fact that he was the, you know, signed before we'd ever played a game, you wonder how, you know, who's, who is really to blame for that? You know, we, we, we had Miguel Angel Ramirez when he was signed. Then Latanzio comes in and changes things up a bit. Is he the kind of player who's good enough that you would hire a coach just so that you'd be playing to his strengths? Probably not. I don't think MLS is a league where that happens. But at the same time, when you hire a coach who wants to do what they want to do, should it be on them to tweak it a little bit so that it does play to their strengths of the best players at their disposal a little bit? Because it is a league like MLS where the top talents, unless you are a marquee um, a marquee market, are going to be available to you. Again, we're back at a situation where we're kind of we're pushing and pulling and there's a little tug of war of, of who is to blame I, for this kind of thing. I can never get you to pin, pin the blame on anybody. I try, <laughs> Ewan, and you're real good at dodging it. Uh, yeah, there are a few <laughs> players out there, I think, fit the the role of you bring this person in and you build your whole team around them. Uh, their names are Kylian Mbappe, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Erling Holland, and Lionel Messi. I, I, and we've done that you, for one. You forgot Bukayo Saka. And Bukayo Saka, yes, I would, I would absolutely <laughs> agree with that. Uh, I was trying not to use Arsenal players because then people will be like, oh, no, he's just biased. He's um, the exception to the rule. He's <laughs> well. Well, in that case, then there's Martin Odegaard, and then there's. <laughs> I will right. say as well, for what for what it is worth, I do think that it should be more on a coach to adjust a team for a player like that, because, like I say, you can't handpick the exact traits of the star players you're going to get. I have a thought, but it's not fully formed. So instead of doing that, I am going to go to Josh. Josh, while we were watching him in the Cincinnati game. I sent something to the, the chat and I was just like, hey, I feel like Carol is a player who they say confidence goes uh, down through the elevator and up by the stairs. And I feel like he goes both ways by the elevator. And the elevator <laughs> is like a light speed elevator that doesn't have to stop at other floors. It just or he goes up and down via teleporter. I, I don't necessarily understand why one game I'll see this guy have these beautiful silky touches that leave the ball into open space where I can see he's clearly like been able to check his surroundings and he knows where the play will be open to. And then other games, I think one of the the phrases I love is he couldn't drop, he couldn't trap a bag of cement. Like what is happening with Carol Schroederski? And is, is this just a confidence thing or do you see something more in it? Um, I, I think I would sort of piggyback off of what, you and alluded to, I don't think I would call Karish Roderski a confidence player, but I liken it to if you watch basketball, there are certain guys where you kind of tell how the game's going to go for them by that first shot. If that first shot goes in, you know that they're going to have a good game, right? In, in American football, there are those quarterbacks where like they have to make that easy three yard slant pass or that screen pass to get them going. And if that doesn't happen, then they sort of get stuck in the mud. And Carol, that feels what he is to me, where those first five to 10 minutes are really important in my mind with Carol Schwederski. And those first few touches and passes sort of have to come off for him. And that's how I usually look at him. And, and you can call that confidence maybe, 
Um, I, I don't really know what to call it because I, I don't think it's a confidence issue. I just think that it's one of those things where when that first good touch around a player happens in those first few minutes or that first good pass or he, he carries the ball through the midfield around a couple players, all of a sudden things just feel like they click during that game. And then there are other games where his first pass is wayward and it's intercepted or he tries to back into a guy and doesn't get the foul call and it just seems to snowball. I, I don't know what you would call that. I do think it adds on to this fact of Carroll, I think, is a really, really good player. But even for MLS, I don't think he's a guy who you can build a team solely around. I think he is a guy who could be a really good second or tertiary threat. I, I do know what to call that. Uh, I would call it chaotic neutral. Does that work <laughs> for everybody? <laughs> um, it, it, in the vein of Carroll is one of these players who you can su- see who he's going to be very early in the match. And I will, I will shout out Nick from the, the CLTFC podcast who uh, it, I enjoy chatting with him during the games in the media box. And he has some really good insights. Nick is very good at going down to the, the field level before the game starting when everyone's warming up. And he will come back up to the media box and he'll be like, this guy's having a game today. And nine out of ten times he's right. It's somewhat disturbing. Like, maybe he's betting on, maybe he should be betting on things. Either way, <laughs> uh, he, he was talking to me about the fact that Carol's really easy to see. That you can see the days when, when he, Carol's going to be on. And he said, watch the way Carol takes shots and watch whether he's just swinging his leg or whether he's aiming for something. And before the game against Philly, I was down on the sidelines and Carol was aiming at the posts. And I'm pretty certain until Carol Sradersky comes out and tells me I'm I'm wrong. Carol was not aiming during the practice shooting to get past Kalina. He was aiming specifically for the posts and he was hitting them like five times out of six in his shots from range that that day he looked like somebody who was going to come alive and he came alive and i think he deserves his flowers for what was a really really special game from him that he went out and he made things happen including the ghosting run for our our second uh goal in that one i'm going to move ahead to the diagora penalty giveaway late in the game Uh, I do think that there must have been some law passed in the state of North Carolina that Charlotte FC must give away X number of late goals. I don't know who signed it. I don't know why they've done this. Terrible job. Zero out of 10 stars. Do not approve. But I have to talk about it because I, I put Nathan Byrne through the ringer for this not that long ago. I was talking about the fact that Nathan Byrne is an established player. He's an older player. He's somebody who has been brought in this team to be a leader and somebody who's been brought in this team to keep his head calm <laughs> during times of chaos and during times of panic. And if you watch the replay of, of Brecht in that moment, as it happens, you can see him go to ground. You can see him get the momentum. And as he's getting the momentum, he goes, oh, no. And it's just this, this wide-eyed, what have I done life is flashing before my eyes moment of I should not be doing what I am currently doing. But of course, he's already off the ground and he goes through the guy and it's it's a penalty. But it's it's another example of a player who I have a little bit more willingness to sort of toss this one aside and say everybody gets a mistake because he hasn't been here very long. 
but it's another example of a player who's supposed to be the old hand. It's another example of the player who's supposed to be the experience. It's another example of the player who's supposed to be the leader that when the chips are down and the moment is the biggest, biggest panicked. And I can't, I can't say what I said about Burn and then just look at the exact same situation for Diagata and give him a free pass. Am I more willing to accept it because this is the first time I've seen it? Yes. Do I think we should kill the guy over it? Absolutely not. I think mistakes happen. But I do think we have to mention that, that this is a really genuinely terrible mistake from somebody who shouldn't be making it. And we should not see it again. Uh, Josh, have I been too, uh, too heavy on the Diagata train there? No, I think that about sums up all the feelings. I mean, I, I will say when I, I, I was traveling during this game, so I was able to catch that the PK. I was able to get the heartbreak without any of the joy. Um, again, embrace <laughs> the pain, everyone. Um, I, I, I just sort of laughed because I couldn't believe that that it a penalty had been given away in that way. And the worst part of it is Philadelphia have a PK merchant in Gazdog. He's a good player. But Daniel Gazdog has 13 goals this year. 11 of them are penalties. For reference, Charlotte, I think, has two penalties on the entire year. I'm not sure that we've even been given more than more than that. We've been given two penalties. Daniel Gazdog has 11 converted penalties himself. So like that was even the other thing where like sometimes you get a penalty and there's something in the back of your head that says, maybe you won't convert it with Philadelphia. You know, it's going in the back of the net. Um, so it was just it was something where. I can't kill the guy either because it is also just such a ridiculous way to give a penalty that I cannot imagine that that is going to happen again. Um, and if it does, then I think we have a real conversation about a lot of things. <laughs> so I'm going to switch up the order a little bit here because. Diagata comes back into play in uh, the next game against Cincinnati. And I'm going to get to asking you guys how much we should put any credit to the Cincinnati game at all. But Diagata comes back into play where he's put high on the right side. And I think we have a, a real interesting sort of microcosm of data here that shows us at this level how important it is that people are playing in the positions they're comfortable in and how amazing it is when some people get pulled out of position and still play pretty decently. Um, I, not, that I, not that I ever want to just stand on top of a mountain and shout Carol's name and joy, but I think what we have seen from Breck Diagata is when he's in the middle third of the pitch on the left side with the ability to move interior, he's an absolute killer. We have a few examples of him being able to really unlock the team and be dynamic and creative and interesting. The moment the team got pushed back and he had to play defense, huge mistake, big moment, not a, you know, he wasn't exactly defensively solid in that match. He certainly, it wasn't lighting anybody up. And when he moved out to the right attacking wing, I didn't see anything about him on the right attacking wing that made me go, yes, this guy is going to be a successful attacking winger. And essentially what we've done is we have seen in four games, one person in one spot, they fit really well. Then they get pushed deeper in the field and they're not nearly as effective. And then they get pushed higher in the field and they're nothing. 
for you, and I'll, I'll go to you, Ewan, for this one. For you, how critical is it at this level that players get to play where they know how to play? How big of a deal is it to ask them to do other jobs? And how much should we kind of be praising people like Brant Bronico, Ben Bender, uh, Carol Schwederski, uh, Derek Jones, these people who've had to play five, six positions in our team? Yeah, I think there's there's two answers there where, one, I think it's very important that you have players at this level playing in the roles which are best suited to them. Um, because, and obviously we'll get to it with Cincinnati, we think that, you know, they're a little bit of an outlier uh, in MLS in terms of their quality. But for the most part, this is a league where the ceiling and the floor of it are closer together than a lot of other leagues around the world. So the talent is very similar club to club for what teams have. Um, so from that, you have to make sure that you're getting the most out of that talent because if you're putting players, your top players, in positions where you can't get the best out of them, then that already fine balance against other clubs of talent, you're giving yourself a disadvantage that you're doing it to yourself before you've even got into the game and you get into the tactics and everything like that of how you want to stop them and how you want to get the better of them. You're already putting your players at a disadvantage when the talent level is equal. Second answer with it, like you say there, is that because of the league that MLS is and the funding that teams have for the most part, you are going to have to have a squad where there will be a little bit of versatility required from its players. So almost by virtue of that, you are sometimes going to have a guy who's a centre mid by trade at fullback, a guy who's a centre back by trade at fullback, a, a you know a, a holding midfielder having to play further up in the midfield in the attacking phases because you just have a guy in, injured and maybe at the same time you have a suspension. Let me let me jump over because I know uh, Josh, you wanted to get it on this one. It looks like. Yeah, so I I just wanted to say how weird it is that we're talking about him seemingly being one of his most ineffective performances coming off the right and then playing guys out of position. The interesting thing is that when you look at Breck's career, he has more appearances on the right side of the pitch. So in fact, the best, the, the performances we've seen where we point to and we go, man, he looked really good, is us playing him out of his historical position. And that's not to say he hasn't played off the left and he doesn't have that sort of um, experience, but when you go and look at his heat maps, you know, you look at his his Ligon heat map from this past year before he joined, and it is definitively skewed to the right. So I, that's just another layer where it feels like we're bringing in guys. We're either then playing them partially out of position. And then when we put them back into position, they're not performing in the way that must have made us want to get them anyways. You look at it with Carol, you look at it with Enzo, you look at it with Camille, like that is the other layer on this and and it's very frustrating and i also don't have a good answer as to why it's happening <laughs> so i i also don't have good answers i mean i will say i think that the team was not necessarily a... okay before we go further into the cincinnati game i have to take all my thoughts i have to box them up i have to put them in the refrigerator for later because i think we have to uh we have to talk about the fact that cincinnati is a very good team so josh can you try and put into perspective how good Cincinnati is and how seriously we should be taking this performance? 
So I think based on regular season performance, it is very easy to, to say that Cincinnati have clearly been the best team in MLS this year. They are 11 points above the second closest team in the East. They are nine points above the first place team in the West. They are fourth in goals uh, in the East. They're fifth overall. They're second in goals allowed in the East, and they're tied for fourth overall. And then when you add on their home record, they are 13-1-1 at home. The expectation going into this game, if we look at this game in isolation, which is, I think, the really hard part, (laughs) we were 99 times out of 100, we were never taking any points from this game. The frustration comes from the fact that this game is coming on the end of these games where we've given away points, so it feels like another in a long line of disappointments. But I think any rational person, um, I, I shouldn't say that, I think anyone who looks at this situation rationally and looks at it from when the League's Cup games ended, you have to look at our schedule and you look at that Cincinnati game and you don't plan on getting any points from that. If you do, that's great. But you look at it and you go, Cincinnati away is not where we're going to live and die with our playoff hopes. Um, and and it showed why, because this team is in a different stratosphere, quite honestly, than we, than than Charlotte is. And I think especially away, you look at this game and you hope for the best. But when it turns out the way it does, you sort of chalk it up and you go, yep, that seems about right. And you and you try to move on to the next game again. It's hard when there's been so much disappointment leading up to it, though. Yeah, it's it's definitely a little bit easier when some things have gone well for you to go into the best team in the league and go look. As long as we don't get as long as we don't get hit with like a six nil, we can we can pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and move on. You and I think that raises a little bit of a bigger question, uh, and that is. We have heard talk at times about the fact that Charlotte FC was designed originally from the Zorin interview to be start to be a real force in the league at three to five years in. Year three now isn't that far away. When you when you look at the gap, and I had this experience last year where we played LAFC and just got slaughtered. And I walked away and I was like, this team's just not good enough. The players are not good enough. The plan is not good enough. The level is not high enough. It, it, scrap it all, throw it away, start new. <laughs> like When you look at a performance like this against a team that is, is where Charlotte eventually wants to be, or so we're told, against what we see where they are now, how, what's your feeling? What's your expectation? I think, yeah, making that direct comparison from us to Cincinnati, I think rather than get, you know, seeing that gap and being intimidated by it, um, you, you almost want to take some lessons from the direction that they've taken because for, as, for how much better they are uh, than Charlotte um, at the moment, it's not that they are, you know, money bags or anything like that. It's not that they've been, it's not into Miami. It's not that ridiculously talented players have just been put into this team and it's just suddenly got good. This is this is Pat Noonan setting out who is the Cincinnati head coach setting out an exact plan for this team, which he was the head coach for all of last season as his first season in charge. There was a plan in place. They weren't as good last season, but they set out an exact way of playing with an exact system, which they've worked on. 
and they believed in that direction. And it's turned into this season where now they've continued to scout for it. They've continued to recruit for it. They absolutely believe in it. And now without having to spend ridiculous amount of amounts of money, they have a really well-profiled squad for exactly what they want to do, which is not the standard system that you see. It's, it's that wing-back system that's a little bit funky with the free rolls in the third, in, in the final third. The centre-backs have to be profiled a little bit interestingly because they need to be good on the ball, but also tough in the box because they defend quite narrow with those three centre-backs. They're a funny side in general. I just, uh, I'd say on, on the point of people being disappointed about this result, for as good as they are, and they, and I completely agree that they have been the best team in the, in, in the normal season so far. Um, they do lull you into a sense that they aren't that good because they don't sit on the edge of your box for the entire game. They don't dominate possession in the way a conventionally great side does. But they absolutely believe in what they're doing. It's a style that they're fully bought into, and it's no coincidence that they are so good at it. Josh, you want in on this one? Yeah, just real quick. I, I wanted to piggyback off this idea of looking at Cincinnati as a plan as well. Because it's also easy to forget that in their first season, they finished 24th in MLS. Then they finished 26th, and then they finished 27th. They were and then last year, they jumped up to 10th, and now they're first, right? And now they did it by kind of scrapping five, their... Five years, yeah. Yeah, they, and they, <laughs> but they also did it by kind of scrapping their original plan. They were another club where their original squad was not well-received by the national media, just like Charlotte's. And when you look at that initial roster and those first few rosters and you look at where it is now, there's not a lot of holdover, right? And so I think that they are really a plan of how Charlotte, if we're serious about competing, can look and say, it can be bad. And we haven't even been as bad as they were their first couple seasons, truly. It can be bad, but you can turn it around fairly quickly if, as Ewan said, you get, you get a system in place where you have a clear idea of what you're trying to do and then you can execute it. Um, that is, of course, much, much easier said than done. Yeah, much, much easier said than done is, I think, the right way to say it. I, I'll be honest, I've seen rebuilds, and I feel like rebuilds often uh, kind of revolve around two or three players that come out of the woodwork. And I struggle to see if the team was going to rebuild from here, who those two or three players out of the woodwork are. But I guess if they're coming out of the woodwork, you that's why you say that, because you don't actually know who they are. So maybe I'm talking myself into my own circle, which... Let's be honest. Wouldn't be the first time. Uh, <laughs> it, it goes back to what we said. We had a conversation about the crown legacy, didn't we? A lot of yep. a lot is being put into that team. A lot is being put into what we do in the MLS draft. The reality is, is that they'll probably have an idea of we like all these players. We've scouted them all, but we're in, we're including the randomness of player development, and we are still hopeful that two or hopefully three of these guys will end up being really, really high level because of how much we've invested. Uh, you and I'm smiling because you just made me feel really dumb. The fact that I didn't bother to look because we've been talking about it all. We have been talking about it all season, how good the MLS next team is. And my brain couldn't couldn't step down one league to talk <laughs> Patrick Agamong and all the other guys down there. Uh, so maybe there is maybe everyone hold on to that little glimmering light of hope and specifically. Go support the crown legacy in their playoffs. If you can go buy tickets, support them, do the good stuff. They deserve uh, our praise for what they've done. I'm going to talk about someone who maybe doesn't deserve praise for what they've done, and that's Kamil Yuzhviak. Uh, I want to discuss this in a little bit more analytical term. 
because I brought it up in the post-react, I gave away my first ever card for somebody who really didn't play. And I realized he got in at the end, but he wasn't really playing then either. Kamal Yushviak was the guy. He was the guy. He was the, the, the big signing. He was, I believe he came from Derby County. You in, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, so this is a guy with uh, English football experience, somebody who we came in and we talked about the fact that he was lightning quick, that he was going to be an, an explosive, interesting, attacking threat on the outsides, that he was a natural goal scorer. And uh, in some, none, how many of those are true at this point in time? It It frustrates me and it concerns me. And I think that the writing is starting to land on the wall for Kamal Yushviak for the fact that he was not chosen to to start this match. And for a guy in his position to become, at best, third choice just feels like a dagger to me. Josh, am I being overly emotional here? Do you, did you see something about this game that just didn't suit Kamal and that's why he didn't get chosen? Or no, is this guy on last leg? I am so torn about Kamal Yuzhwiak because on the one hand, I have actually been, I've been a defender of him, but I've also been cautious about him because when you look at Kamal, he had a really good season in Poland, which got him his move to the championship. And then he did nothing there. But then you also look and you say, well, Derby was a mess. There was bankruptcy and there was also a global pandemic and it's a young guy moving to a new league. And then he comes here and you see the glimpses at the end of the year last year. And then he starts out well this year. He finally gets a goal and everyone's excited. And I don't know what to make of Kamo. And after two years, I think that that probably says it all. I think he's a good squad player. I think he has been hurt by the expectations coming in. Those that experience in championship, right? Being able to say, we got a guy who played in England. Um, we have a Polish international. I mean, I think it is easy to forget he was a prospect at one point, right? Um, and I think that those expectations coupled with the DP tag have really hurt him because I do not think that he was a finished product. And unfortunately, I don't think he's developed the consistency that is needed to become a guy that you can count on. I think the talent is there. I just don't think that I, I kind of have reached a point where I don't think we're going to see that talent consistently show itself here. And I think it would probably be better for everyone involved for a move to happen. Because I think, I mean, he's only 25. He still has a lot of career left and he still has a ton of talent. It just feels like it hasn't worked out here and it feels like we're kind of treading water with it right now. And so if we could get some kind of fee for him, if he could go somewhere, maybe back to Poland, maybe another MLS club and get that fresh start, start I think it's sort of best for everyone at this point. Because when you can't beat a 34-year-old winger that wasn't on the roster at the beginning of the year, and then a midfielder turned winger, it, it is a problem, especially when you have that price tag. Yeah, I, you know, one of the questions that I ask myself about this league is, is it a young man's league or is it an old man's league? Is it a league designed for people who are, who are at the, the, the twilight years of their time as professional footballers who could come in and dominate the league? Or is it a league for people who are uh, young and explosive and exciting and figuring things out and the fans get behind them as they grow? 
But one thing it's definitely not is a league for people who are dead smack in the middle of their prime that are third choice in their winger position. And that sounds harsh to say out loud, but it's the truth. This is a person who is dead smack in the middle of his prime, especially at the wings. At 25, 26, 27 is when you start learning how to play on the inside because you're going to be losing that pace. And he's third choice on a struggling, is a polite way to put it, MLS team. And I don't think that's good enough. And I, I don't think he should think that's good enough. I think there's more talent in there. And he's not able to bring it out here. I'm going to go on uh, to another player really quickly. And uh, that is Udonin, who, again, I apologize for my absolute inability to say his name. Uh, <laughs> was it was it Josh who wanted to talk Udonin? Forgive me. Um, I was just going to say, I, I know that there was a lot of questions around why he didn't get the start against Cincinnati. Um, and it was a little unclear, but friend of the pod, Carol Walton, uh, she did report that um, Latanzio said he felt something in his knee during the Philly game. And so they just, it sounds like they didn't want to risk having a player that might have to come off early against such a good team. Um, and so that's so, why he didn't get the start, but he was on the bench. So knowing that he was on the bench, do you believe that? Because I, I won't lie, I do think that there's a safety out for coaches to sit someone down for coaching purposes, not even for like punishment purposes for, hey, take a look at the game from the sideline, look at it, take time to, to see it happen and fold in front of you, and then go in the next time and try again. And then the coach can just sort of say, oh, well, he was on the bench, but his knee felt a bit odd. Uh, where do you stand on this? Um, I, I am going to take them at their word with this. Um, I, I don't know why. I mean, I have no real reason. I just, I just am. And, and I sort of look at it as this feels like if this were the second to last or last game of the season and we need, you know, like we were a point up or a point down, I think he plays like that's sort of the feeling I get was that if it was a must, he has to play. He could have type of thing. Um, but because they felt whether rightly or wrongly that they could make up for his absent with, with a burn at left back and Jalen at right back, I think it makes sense. And, and I, I think you kind of have to trust it until it's proven otherwise. All right. Uh, very quickly, Ewan, I'm just going to ask you, are you on the, uh, the train of believe the club or are you on the train of, oh no, I've lost the word uh, of the conspiracy theories. <laughs> I'm going to do classic me and say that this is probably a bit of both. <laughs> that the he probably was injured, but if you put this injury onto <laughs> Carol Svidersky's body, I think he plays. I, Ewan, I swear I'm going to get you a crown cast <laughs> mug and it's going to have a fence on it and it's just going to have a little cartoon image think, of you. I think, that's, that <laughs> I think it's fair. I think that's fair enough, though. I do think that he probably oh. did carry an injury, but if this was Carol Svidersky or Ashley Westwood, they probably say, are you sure you can't give us 60 minutes? Something like yep. that. You know what I mean? So I, I, again, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sit on the fence, but I do think that's probably the truth. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I, I want to talk very quickly to you, Ewan, about Bill Tuiloma. This is a guy who uh, was the mainstay in the team, got a lot of flack in the media for, quite frankly, some very not good performances. And then suddenly was gone, dropped like a rock. We haven't heard his name since. 
But you actually think this might have been a game for him. Do you want to you talk about Tui Loma? Yeah, I, I feel like this kind of game where, from the game plan that we had, we were trying to advance the ball quickly into eight positions from a 3-2 build-up with one centre-back pressing up with his privet and Melanda sitting in there in between the three, Westwood dropping in there as well. Or the idea of bringing up a little bit of pressure because Cincinnati are quite happy to sit back on you, just trying to invite a little bit of something and get the ball advanced. And in what has been a tough season for Bill Tuiloma, that is one of the things that we have seen him do well. So from that perspective, I do think it would have given us a lot of freedom there, especially when you consider the fact that, and I'm not saying that we would have dropped him to make this happen, but when you consider the fact that Melanda was being given a lot of build-up responsibility with the way we set up and he wasn't doing the best job. Uh, of fulfilling those responsibilities. So I think in possession, Bill Tuilema would have been a massive help. I can't account for the fact that we had to do a lot of box defending in this game, and he definitely brings a little bit of chaos to that from what we've seen this season. Not exactly the most reliable defender uh, at the club or or in the game in general. So, yeah, I just... And, and that's probably why he didn't play this game. That's probably why he doesn't play at large. And it's almost a little bit of the Kamil Ujviaks, whereby he's probably looking at this situation with Andrew Privet and thinking, I am not getting games in a situation where the guys who ahead of me who are getting get who are getting game time are a combination of young and and or out of position. So yeah, a situation which will be interesting to to monitor as we go deep into the season. Because uh, obviously in this game Privet is at fault, you could say, for uh for that second goal. So whether he keeps his place, whether we roll the dice with Tuiloma again, potentially something to monitor. Yep. Uh, just just word getting in now that we have actually reached out uh, for Josh to, to come in and play defense for Charlotte FC. So Josh, <laughs> go ahead and make sure you, you put your boots no on. No one wants uh, that. If you think, if you think <laughs> Bill is bad. <laughs> um, I will, I'll very briefly touch and we might do a little bit more on this later. Uh, because I enjoy data and I have a brain that once it gets a hold of something just doesn't want to stop. I talked about in the in one of the earlier episodes of I was having trouble identifying how to evaluate Brant Bronico. Do I look at what he does well? Or do I look at what he has challenges in? So I went in and I did what I normally do. And I hyper focused on it. And I came up with all sorts of data and I wrote my own data model. And if anyone out there remembers my first attempt at writing a data model, I gave myself a very large headache, and then I quit. This time, I have gotten slightly better, and I have given myself a very large headache, and then I came up with a data model that basically tells us what we already know. <laughs> I, I set out to give a, a numerical value to the various points of Brant Bronico's game, based on him playing the position of the eight in the last six matches, since we've seen the turnaround in the way the team played. And what I have come to is that Brant Bronico has actually been performing as a player a lot better since that turn of the games. The Brant Bronico we were seeing before then was a kind of across the board, a below average midfielder in the MLS. He was what I would describe as like a like a 3.5 out of 10 across the board. Since he has moved higher up the pitch, he has really been able to unlock one of his superpowers, which is his ability to get into open space and be an outball. He receives progressive passes 
at a rate that is superhuman. I don't, I don't know how he does it. It's very, very impressive. He has a knack for scanning the field and finding where pressure can be released to get the ball past him. And once he receives that ball, he's very good at, because he's found open space, he's very good at turning up the field and dribbling with it. Whether that be uh, pressure coming out from our defensive side or whether that be he's making interesting creative runs into the penalty box where he gets a lot of his touches, he will get the ball and he'll move with it. He's not often the type of guy who wants to get the ball and pass it off quickly. And again, this is all data saying this and lots and lots of hours of watching Y Scout videos. <laughs> what, what I have come to is I have concerns about the way Brant Bronico scans the field. When he is not on the ball, Brant checks his shoulders a lot. He's really, really, really good at finding where space is, not just for his team, but from the opponent's defense. He can isolate positions where Charlotte FC has failed to fill, and he will leave his space to go fill them. Now, there's a bigger argument that goes on about whether or not we see Brant Bronico vacating spaces that he still needs to be in. But we know he can do this. So the question then becomes, why does he lose the vision of the field when he's dribbling? We have seen through the data and through our eye test, he's not a particularly good passer. He doesn't particularly play through balls well. He doesn't take defenders on particularly well. When he is holding the ball, he gets tackled a lot, meaning he's holding the ball too long. All of these data points and some others come to sort of a conclusion for me that Brant Bronico's technical level with the ball might come down to the fact that he can't take his eyes off the ball while he's dribbling. I have now said uh, kind of kind of what I've I've come to out of this model. So Josh, I want to ask you, have you have you seen this out of Brant Bronico? And knowing that he has the superhuman off the ball ability in the MLS, do you take his his struggles when he's on the ball? So uh, I think. Brandt is just such a he's such a hard player because I, I still there's still a player in there that I do like. I will I will say I see his ability to pop up in good spaces in this team. But I don't see enough of that to counteract the issues when he is pushed into those higher spaces. For me, when I look at this team, I kind of see two players who could potentially go into that role and that's brecht and that is um uh oh my goodness i'm so sorry i'm forgetting his name who's the other uh british guy that we just bought uh scott Arfield. Arfield. sorry Arfield, yeah. thank you thank oh. you <laughs> uh anyway happens to all of us it's not yeah. just me yes. <laughs> um but those to me i i kind of look at this team the way that the, the current squad and i think Okay, you could move Brecht in there and then you could have a, a more traditional winger there or you could have Scott Arfield come in and start. And when they get into those positions, would they do more with those positions? And I think the answer is probably yes. Would they get into those positions as much as Brant does? I'm not sure. We haven't seen enough from either of them. But I think I would take fewer instances of good positioning that turn into better chances, which I think is usually sort of our attack fizzling out when when he gets the ball. Um, I, I'm not, again, like Carroll, like some other players, I'm not quite sure what his best role is. I think that there's still a good squad player in there. 
Um, but I don't think that in general you're going to have one of the elite teams if you have Brant Pronico as your starting eight in this kind of system. Yeah, I think I think that about sums it up. And and just for time purposes, I'm gonna I'm gonna say to what I've come to very quickly. And you and if you want to get on this, you can. Uh, but essentially, Brant Bronico feels like the the way that someone tries to open the door is brute force. Brant Bronico is try every possible combination on the lock as fast as you can, and then hope that one of them works. That's what Brant Bronico is. He gets into an amazing number of of great positions but he converts them at a very, very rare rate. Grant Bronico is a combination lock where you try every single one at a rate that other teams can't keep up with. And you know what? In my opinion, that's a, that's a useful player. Is it a useful player who is one of the team's only options to get out or one of the team's primary attacking strategies? I, I don't know that I would, I would agree with that. You and anything you want to say on this, or should we jump ahead to the uh, preview? Yeah, I'd just say I think that's pretty spot on in terms of who he is as a player. Um, if he's one of your starting players, one of the guys who's taking up a creative position, you might not have much of a high ceiling as a team, but someone who absolutely has value as a versatile squad player. And also, you know, we're talking data, we're talking the tape that we watch and everything like that. It's obvious from getting to know Brant Bronico and what he's like, he he brings a real value to the dressing room as well. That, that, yes. And that, that counts for something. That, that counts for a, a lot. I'm I'm one of those people who I actually think that particular soft factor matters a lot more than some others. Uh, I know some people write it off, but uh, dressing room harmony, I do think, matters. Let's go ahead and look ahead to the next one. And as ever, I will go to you, Josh, because we are going to uh, play New England and we are going to yep. destroy them, correct? Absolutely. Um, because we are a great road team and um, New England is terrible. Um, that's the preview. No, that's it. That's all. That's all you needed. That's a, yeah. at this point in time, it's just blind optimism. People, hang on for the ride. No. Um, New England are not a bad team. They're not a vintage, and what I mean by vintage is two, three years ago, New England team that was consistently one of the best um, teams. They're currently sitting sixth in the East. They're on forty-nine points, so they're pretty safe in getting into the playoffs at this point. I mean, I, I don't think that they've technically clinched but i think it would take a lot to happen for them not to make it at least in one of those playing games um they can score some goals they're they're at 49 goals for this season 36 goals allowed as always with new england it's going to come down to to um charles heel um their all world midfielder who i know a lot of charlotte fans for some reason do not like um he is another Acosta in my opinion they do they do similar things to me on the field um he's at nine goals so far this year with seven assists no we do not look at MLS's ridiculous 13 assists that they give him um but the 13 assists that MLS gives him does speak to the th the fact that he is in the 99th percentile for things like key passes progressive passes passes into the final third passes into the penalty box and I want to make the point that that is the 99th percentile, not just for MLS, but for the next 14 competitions. And what that means is that's when comparing him to other leagues, including Liga MX, the Dutch League, uh, the Europa League, um, the Portuguese League, the Mexican League. 
basically this guy as a creative midfielder who can also score score goals would be a really successful player at almost any league outside of the top five. And even in the top five, he could probably make some of those more mid-table, lower-level teams. He is an exceptionally talented player, and the game plan has to start with how do you keep him from getting on the ball? How do you keep him from getting into dangerous positions? It doesn't happen very often, but Charlotte have shown an ability to to limit creative players at times. Um, a couple other guys that I'll be keeping my eye out on are a former Juventus legend, Giacomo Veroni, who made two appearances for that club. But he is a fairly young guy. He has a history of scoring. He had um, 20 goal involvements in the Austrian Bundesliga um, a couple years ago. He has six goals and an assist this year for New England. He's a he's a pretty good player. And then New England has maybe my favorite pair of fullbacks in the league in Brandon Bay and Dewan Jones. I think it's really hard to find a better pair of fullbacks in MLS than those two. They're both good going forward. Dewan Jones is the better offensive player, really dangerous carrier, dribbler, passer of the ball. Um, Bay's not quite as good going forward, but he can put in a good cross. Defensively, they're both good. Bay is a little bit better as a one-on-one defender. Um, but and Dewan Jones can read the game well. So those are sort of the guys that I'd be looking out for. But again, the main guy has to be Hill and whether you can stop him from doing the things that he likes to do. Fair enough. Ewan, is there anything you want to say before I ask how we are going to score our goals? Yeah, no, I was just going to piggyback off uh, one of the points that you made there, Josh, in terms of our ability to uh, to deal with teams that have a little bit of a heliocentric setup because we've we've dealt with the uh, Hani Mukhtars, we've uh, we've dealt with Thiago Almada. Uh, we we we've come against these teams where it's very much kind of they have one play and we just, you know, we had it I know they're a great team overall, but obviously Acosta kind of stands a little bit above the rest from that creative perspective. We're getting experience of dealing against these players, so by now we really should have a decent plan in place for how we're going to uh, um how we're going to address these kind of games where you have to shut it off from those sources centrally i also think it's probably worth pointing out that new england do like to have a lot of their build-up early in second phase from out wide and we are a team that likes to make sure that everything is condensed and we keep our press in the narrow part of the field so if you're looking for a particular area of this game where you know the the chess match so to speak could happen it'll be in that that first phase of build-up for new england where we are just trying to keep that pitch as narrow as possible and block those passes and i'm sure they'll they'll have some plans as well of how they're going to get the ball into those areas to those fullbacks that Josh mentioned. All right. Well then I am going to go ahead into my statement here and uh, that is going to be my thing to watch. And it's going to be my thing to watch because it's currently my hyper focus. And that is how Brant Bronico uh, does on the ball. I think I now know confidently that Brant is going to get on the ball in many, 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 many times and in many interesting positions, it's going to be how he receives the ball and how the ball is given to him. I think something that's going to be interesting for me is when he receives the ball, are these passes that are controllable? Are these passes that he's having to pull down in dangerous spaces that uh, are allowing him to get tackled? Or is he fumbling things that are easily controllable? I think some of these these things on the outside that you de- don't get in the data are going to continue to affect how I see Brandt's performances. And that will be what I'm looking at 
and might be something interesting for you, the dear listener, too, as well. We are going to go ahead and begin to wrap it up there. This has been a bit of a long one, but we covered two games, and by that I mean we barely talked about the games themselves. We hope you've enjoyed the various points that the games have brought about. But I will go ahead and say thank you to Ewan. Yep, thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. And once again, because we understand the melancholy nature of where we are with this team is slowly setting in on all of us like a like a dark cloud of gloom. If you have decided to spend your time with us, we love you. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, we will talk to you again after we go take our next three points from New England Revolution. Goodbye. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Network.com.